Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. That's where we are today. We are completing our series that has taken us through the Lord's Prayer, verse by verse, Matthew chapter 6. Today we're looking at the, the last portion of verse 13, uh, what we call the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. And here's the key concept for today. We should pray that God is glorified. Pray that God is glorified. Matthew 6, 13. It will do you well to actually have your Bibles open today because we're going to talk about the text, the printed text of your Bible. So if you have that, I encourage you to find that. Uh, I heard a story about a Baptist woman who, uh, who was visiting some friends of hers. Uh, these friends were uh, devout Roman Catholics, and as they gathered around the table, it was time to say the blessing for the food, and they did that. But they also had a, uh, a tradition of reciting the Lord's Prayer. And so, so that was fine. She, she knows that Catholics say it a little different. They say, forgive us our transgressions. We usually pray, forgive us our debts. No big deal. But when it came to the end of the prayer, they all stopped, and she carried on with a solo voice, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And she opened her eyes, and they were all staring at her. No one else had said that. What's going on? Well, it's true that Roman Catholics normally do not pray what we have come to call the doxology portion of the Lord's Prayer when they recite the Lord's Prayer. But I want you to look in your Bible and notice with me in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, that probably those words are not in the main text of your Scriptures. Probably they're not there. In fact, if you look around, you may find that there's a footnote and you need to find them in the, on the bottom of the page or on the side of the page. If they are in the text, maybe, uh, maybe there's brackets around those words, the last portion of verse 13. We're talking about the portion that says this, 16, uh, 613b says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. But if I'm going to read that from my Bible, I need to find those words down on the bottom margin. They're not in the text of my Bible. And today, we're going to find out why that is. They are in the text of the Bible that was translated in 1611, the King James Version. But since that time, we have discovered more reliable manuscripts that do not contain those words. And thus, most of the modern translations put those, that doxology in the margins of your Bible. Now, today, we're all going to go to Bible college, okay? And I'm going to explain what we call the, the science of textual criticism. Now, if in, in an academic setting, that's the word for what I'm going to explain to you this morning, textual criticism. But I don't like that word. In fact, none of us likes that word. It sounds like we're criticizing the Bible, criticizing the text, but we're not at all. I'm going to use the word textual analysis, okay, for what we'll talk about today. The study of textual analysis is not to criticize the Bible or its teaching, but rather it is to set the goal of analyzing the words of our modern translations and trying to research back through the ancient manuscripts to come to as close as we can so that our translation is exactly what was originally written, the original wording of the text, okay? And we do that because 
we do not have the original parchment that was written on by the secretary or the amanuensis, as we call them, that the Apostle Paul dictated to when he wrote his letters. Nor do we have the scroll that Matthew wrote on as he was recalling the words of Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount. Those are technically called the autographs, and we don't have any of the autographs, uh, but rather uh, that were written on by the human authors of Scripture, but rather what we have are copies. And in many cases, we have copies of copies of copies, and we call them the manuscripts. And so the science of tracing back through the history of those manuscripts back in time is what's called textual analysis. And here's the good news about textual analysis. It is a tremendously Bible-affirming process. When you do this, you find out how wonderfully accurate our Bibles are. Textual analysis. You shouldn't feel threatened by it. Now, some people will hear about that and they'll say, well, it's probably unnecessary because God must have protected the transmission of the text so that there's no mistakes in it. So this is an irrelevant practice. But the fact is, when we analyze the manuscripts, we do see slight variations that have crept in in the transmission. You need to remember this. Until 1450, every single text of the Bible was hand copied and then recopied and then recopied by hand over and over again. And even though those ancient scribes took great pains to try to do it to the very best of their ability, they were human beings. And where human beings are involved, little mistakes tend to creep in. So the goal of textual analysis is to work back as far as possible to be as accurate as possible in terms of our modern-day translation. But like I say, it is tremendously Bible-affirming, first of all, in the witness of the work, but second of all, we should rejoice in the fact and be grateful for when there is an adjustment, when somebody finds a, a, a manuscript witness that changes our English translation a little bit, we should be grateful for that because it gives us a more accurate understanding of the Word of God that we value so highly. See, here, here's the good news. While there are variations between the manuscripts, uh, from time to time, those variations are slight, and they're also very explainable. Very often they have to do with a choice between two equally appropriate synonyms in a sentence, words that would, would mean the same thing, or very often uh, a connecting word like to, for, and needs to be inserted that has been left out, that kind of thing. My Old Testament professor was, uh, was Doug Stewart when I was in seminary. He wrote the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, uh, that many of us use. And he writes this, even if you adopt virtually every possible alternative reading to those that now serve as the basis for the English translation, absolutely nothing essential to the major doctrines of the Bible would be affected. So that's the good news. Well, then you say, well, if that's the good news, why bother with this? My answer is simply this. I believe the Bible is inspired by God, and I believe the inspiration of the Scripture extends to the very words themselves. That's called verbal inspiration. I am interested, therefore, in finding the most accurate wording that can be found, 
because the words matter. The words make the difference. God did not appear to the Apostle Paul and say, Paul, I want you to write a book about sin. Make sure you tell him I'm against it. No, no, no. He didn't have that kind of his concept kind of guidance. Neither did he dictate to the biblical authors, word for word, this is what you are to write down. The very words of the Scriptures are inspired by God, but he did that through the human authors in a way that used those authors' education level, their writing skills, their personality comes through, their vocabulary. All that was, was, was uh, in their inspiration as the Holy Spirit worked through them. So the words matter, and textual analysis takes us back to the words when we have slight variations in the, in the copies. So we're all still in Bible college. Without getting into the weeds too much, when we look at a text that, that has some variation, we have, we have two aspects to our analysis of textual, uh, textual analysis. One we call external evidence and the other internal evidence. The external evidence in evaluating a manuscript is this. The date of the manuscript is external. In other words, how early was this manuscript written in relationship to the original? The region of the world that the manuscript comes from is part of the external evidence because manuscripts tend to travel in families. They're, you know, copied and recopied and recopied regionally. And then the number of manuscripts that have a specific kind of reading, that's the external evidence that we apply to these ancient documents. And the internal evidence is a consideration of, well, how would a variation like what we're observing, how would that have come to be? For instance, it's much more likely that an ancient copyist copying the Bible by hand would inadvertently insert something into the text rather than purposefully take something out of the text that they believe to be the Word of God. Okay? So we, we want to find out how that kind of thing <clears throat> could happen. So I'm going to give you an example of where this comes up in Scripture. In John chapter 5, uh, Jesus comes to the pool of Bethesda, and there at the pool of Bethesda, he heals the lame man. Now I'm going to show you the text of John chapter 5 that's relevant, and just uh, we'll put it on the screen, and, uh, and I want to read it to you. It goes like this. No, go, go back to... Uh, Go back to the previous slide. You're ahead of me. There you go. In John chapter 5, verse 3, there are here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, do you see what's missing? Did you see something missing? Put, the, put it back on the screen, please. Put the verse back. In, there you go. What's missing from that text? Verse 4 is missing. That's exactly from my NIV Bible. Verse 4 is missing. You'll only find verse 4 in the New King James or the King James Version. In the New King James, it says this. Let's go to the next slide. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring up of the water was made, uh, was made well because of whatever, uh, of whatever disease he had. Okay? But notice the asterisks. After that verse, if, you're, you, if you follow your eye to the asterisk to the margin in the in New King James Bible, it says this, this verse is missing in the best manuscripts. So how is it that they know that the best manuscripts have that verse missing? Well, it's the 
evidence that I just mentioned to you. For instance, the date, the external evidence. That verse, verse 4, is not present in the oldest manuscripts that we have, the ones closest to the original. The region. That verse, verse 4, is only present in the manuscripts that come from the Byzantine Empire. That's the eastern portion of the Roman Empire, late in the empire when it was being ruled from Constantinople, now, now Istanbul, okay? That verse does not appear anywhere in any Western man manuscript. Well, what about the internal evidence? Well, it's much more likely that a copyist who was copying the, that, that, that passage of Scripture is thinking to himself, well, maybe they would be, it would be helpful if people had an explanation as to why the lame people would go down to the pool of Bethesda, okay? And so that copyist wrote that down in the margin, never expecting that to be part of the Scriptures, just like a study Bible kind of explanation. This is why people went down there, okay? And it was added later. But in either way, it does nothing to alter the teaching of Jesus. And so this ancient copyist writes, writes down in the margin why people would come to the pool of Bethesda, and it gets recopied and copied again. And somewhere along the line, another copyist thought to themselves, oh my goodness, he didn't have room for that. And so he inserts that into the text, which the best manuscripts don't show. See, this, this is the study of textual analysis. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Very similarly, uh, the events happened in, in this passage as well. It is likely that a scribe copying this portion of Matthew somehow uh, said to themselves, Th this is so wonderful, and he kind of wrote down these words as an expression of his own worship and praise. And he also wrote down these words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, because it doesn't sound good to end the prayer after deliver us from the evil one, just abruptly like that. His instincts told him that something more should be there. And guess what? Spoiler alert, his instincts were correct, all right? But originally, in the earliest manuscripts, that that portion of it wasn't present. External evidence, as a matter of fact, that portion which is in the 1611 King James Bible, that is not found in any manuscript until we find it in Egypt in AD 400. 340 years has gone by until, until that, uh, that, that edition of the uh, transmission of the text. And that manuscript that has that first, the first ever demonstration of this doxology, we have it now. It's in the Smithsonian Institute today. It's called the Washington Codex. So maybe after all this, you, th you say to yourself, well, maybe we should just leave it out altogether. I mean, wh why, do, why do we even bother? So let me explain why we should pay attention to those words even if it's in the margin. Uh, British scholar N.T. Wright, who's excellent in history and Greek, says this. He says, it is inconceivable within Jewish praying styles of the day that Jesus would have intended the prayer to stop abruptly out of deliver us from evil. Something like this, like this doxology, must have been there from the beginning. Deliver us from evil without even an amen just doesn't fit with the beauty of the prayer. And it doesn't fit with the way first century Jews would be, uh, would be taught to pray. 
And God's kingdom, God's glory, and God's power is what this prayer is really all about. So it's a beautiful conclusion, and it is right for us to retain those words, even if it's sectioned off in the margins, because the teaching of those words, the sentiment of those words, rounds out the entire prayer. We've already prayed, thy kingdom come, because... His is the kingdom. We've already prayed, thy will be done, because His is the power. We've already prayed, God, that your name be hallowed, because His is the glory. He has jurisdiction over all things and all ages, and He has the ability to enforce His will. When we say, thine is the kingdom, we're saying yes to the fact that God has absolute ruling power over all things. He is the monarch of all history. When we are born again into the family of God, we become citizens of that kingdom. When we pray, thine is the power, we're rejoicing that God is all-powerful. He's able to bring about the answers to our prayers according to His will. When we pray, thine is the glory, we are affirming that God is glorious. He uh, deserves to receive praise, and He's surrounded by praise and worship in the throne room of heaven. First Chronicles 16, 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. And when we do that, when we obey that command, our lives come into balance. When we do that and we obey that command, we are stepping into the rhythm of eternity. So ending this prayer with this statement of worship and praise is perfectly appropriate. Charles Spurgeon once said over the whole prayer, he said, if you pray the Lord's Prayer, you can envision yourself in each of the phrases of the Lord's Prayer descending rung by rung down a ladder. Because we start the prayer in the heights, right? Ray up on the top, hallowing the name of our Heavenly Father. And then we ask Him for His kingdom to come, which reminds us as we move a rung down that we are subjects to that kingdom. And then we say, thy will be done. And again, once again, we move a rung down because now not only are we subjects of the kingdom, but we are the servants doing his will and his commands. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we go a rung down because we're reminded that we are needy before him. And beggars, we're looking for him to provide. When we pray, forgive us our debts, we go a rung down. Not only are we needy, but we are sinners. And we need his protection and care to keep us away from, from sinning. That we go a rung down and we say, lead us not in temptation. We remind that we, ourselves that we are weak and we need his strength. We need assistance, and unless he intervenes, we'll not escape temptation. But then Spurgeon says, when you get to the doxology of the prayer, it's like we're lifted back to the heights again. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we want to be near to that king. We're like little children who want to be close to our Savior, and his glory satisfies and keeps us safe. The prayer opens with praise, and the prayer closes with praise. And finally, we say at the very end, amen, which means so be it or let it be so. And when you say amen, you are saying, I have faith that God is able to make so the prayer that I just prayed. He has the power to do it according to his will and according to his timing. Amen is not a wishful thinking word. Amen is a word of certainty. It says, I am assured that God is able I believe that he has heard my prayer, and I believe that he responds to prayer, 
And he does so perfectly, always in love and in wisdom and in perfect timing. That's what I say when I say amen. That's what I'm saying. And so this is a model prayer. But this model prayer gives us beautiful words which strengthen us and remind us that we have a God who listens and a God who responds. So today, I've taken you to Bible college. Now I'm going to take you to 1611. We're going to time travel. And in 1611, when they translated the King James Version, uh, this is the, the wording uh, of the prayer that I'd like you to pray with me. Just re re recite it together, and we'll be reading it off the screens, okay? It says this, reading, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Ryan and Monique are going to come and share a song with us that just reflects back on this entire journey through the Lord's Prayer uh, in music. So let's uh, listen as they sing. the power and the glory 